It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Does My Life Have a Motivating Vision? Coming up in this episode, every serious Christian wants to be all in when it comes to how we live our lives for God through Christ. Yet many of us end up distracted and floundering. What do we do? How do we grab hold of and maintain a strong and God-based vision to guide our lives? Where do we start? Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years, and Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for this episode? Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. We all know people who are visionaries, you know, the, the kind of people who change the world around them. They see things that others don't. They they imagine possibilities that others can't, and this often results in them taking risks in ways that others won't. While we appreciate these trendsetters, most of us are not that kind of visionary. However, we can and should be visionaries for our own lives. So where do we find the inspiration and guidance for our life's vision? As Christians, the obvious answer is to look to the Bible. The only problem with this is we often see the scriptures through the eyes of our own limitations. So today, let's look more closely to see if we can find a biblically motivated vision for our lives that we can really invest ourselves into. So as we look at this, this is this is not a this is not a motivational uh, talk. This is not a get pumped up. This is a clear-cut discussion on creating a very spiritually driven vision for our lives. Jonathan, let's read our, our theme scripture one more time here. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. And Rick and Julie, this verse reminds me of a recent current event that took place. There was a giant vision change in the National Football League. A player's heart stopped after a hit and medical staff were there immediately to try to revive him. The game was no longer important. This player's life was. We watched the players from both teams praying together on the field. An announcer prayed on air on his behalf. Within minutes, the player was resuscitated and taken to the hospital. The NFL canceled the game, which never happens. For that moment, there was something bigger here than a game. This was a huge vision change. Yeah, and, and, and that is, it's a, it's a stark example of seeing things from a very different perspective. So, our scripture, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. So, the question is, what exactly is Solomon saying here? Jonathan, the words vision and unrestrained, what, what do they mean? Well, vision means a sight mentally that is a dream, revelation, or oracle. Unrestrained means loosen by implication to expose or dismiss. This verse is translated with many different shades of meaning. Here's a small sampling. You look at the King James, it says, where there's no vision, the people perish. Young's literal says, without a vision, a people made naked. Rotherham, a people is let loose. The New Jerusalem Bible, the people get out of hand. American Standard Version 1901 says, where there's no vision, the people cast off restraint. So putting this all together, what does it mean? <laughs> there's a lot of shades of meaning here. So because it's hard to really zero in on it, I'm going to give you a Rick interpretation of this verse. This is not a translation. This is an interpretation <laughs> of this verse. When I read this verse and the context and the scriptures and all, here, here's what I think. Where there is no firm and compelling life, vision, and direction— People become unrestrained, directionless, and exposed. They will be drawn to the next tempting idea and not to their highest purpose. 
Okay, so that makes sense because when we contrast that with a New Year's resolution, those are typically more like a wish, a passing thought that's kind of fuzzy and kind of an often emotional, temporary kind of vision. I looked up psychologytoday.com and they said that 80% of New Year's resolutions fail by February. Why? Our goals aren't clear. We feel overwhelmed. We feel discouraged and we are not ready to change. So what does my Christian vision need in order for my zeal and commitment to be powerful enough for me to succeed? That's what we want to answer in this discussion. And I'm glad you asked that question, because that's what we all need to know. So let's start with Jesus. Jesus was very pointed about giving us compelling specifics about motivation to follow him. There's, there's three examples of Jesus putting these, these specifics in place. Let's start, Jonathan, let's start with Matthew 4, 18 to 19. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus pointed out that these men were dedicated and attentive to and challenged them to refocus that attention on something higher and far more worthy. Jesus saw them fishing, identified what they were good at, and said, let me raise you up to a higher vision. You will fish for men by spreading the gospel. He didn't say, let me make you a high priest. He met them where they were in life. So he took that and he said, essentially, I see you. I see who you are. I see what, what, what you know. I understand you. Now bring who you are and what you know, and let's bring that up higher. The next example is with the rich young ruler. Uh, and Jonathan, that's Mark 10, 20 to 21. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus identified what was most influential in this rich young ruler's life and challenged him to replace it with a higher cause and purpose. So in other words, I can show you treasure in heaven bigger than anything you can comprehend. You want treasure? Let's talk real treasure. Jesus saw what the young man was committed to and wanted to raise him up to a higher vision. And again, I love how he met people exactly where they were in life and then elevated their vision into something more motivating and more meaningful. So again, Jesus says, I see you. I understand you. I know what's important to you. Let me bring you up higher because I understand who you are and what drives you. See, there, there's this compelling sense of, of, of stepping further that Jesus always brought forth. One final example, and this is more of a general example where Jesus is talking to many about following him, and that's Luke 9, 23 to 24. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Jesus' motivating vision was to replace our human ambitions simply and dramatically with the higher cause of following him and fulfilling God's will. So you have Jesus again saying to the, the masses of people following him, I see you. I understand you. I see all of the things that your life brings to you and for you and challenges you with. And I'm saying to you, lay those things down and come up higher Bring your experiences to me and through me, and we can see a higher reason for your living. So in all of these things, Jesus always sees us where we are, and he invites us from where we are. He doesn't invite you from where I am. He invites you from where you are. This is one of the key bases for understanding what do we need our motivation, our motivating vision to look like. It's got to be based on who we are and where we're coming from. Oh, there's a, there's a quote, Jonathan, from <laughs> Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. What is it? Things that matter most must never be at the mercy of things that matter least. In a spiritual sense, this is Jesus's message. So we humans create different kind of visions. Like, for example, some have what you might call a feudal vision. 
that's based on fictitious conclusions contrary to the most important thing. Feudal visions are common and they make me think of social media and the unattainable and often meaningless goals that it tempts us with. So with knowledge and technology come choices, lots and lots of choices, and they're embedded in various shades of gray, all designed to capture our hearts and imaginations. And all futile. Okay, this is a vision that's not only small and unchallenging, but it's destructive. It's destructive. It actually brings us down, for it's based in self-centered thinking. Remember, we're Christians. It's based in self-centered thinking and, and talk and actually subverts the most important thing, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, walking in his footsteps. And if it's all about me then it's not all about Christ. Exactly. And we need to be clear about what our motivating vision for our lives as Christians has to have as its center. And the answer is always the same. Now, this is something that doesn't matter where you come from, whether you come from there, over there, or back there, it's always the same. The center is Christ. How do we see that? How do we find that? That's what we want to do. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, but avoid social media. No, no, I mean worldly (laughs) and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Well, worldly and empty chatter really does describe our day with social media. Humans have never been more connected and yet more alone. Those connections are typically shallow and essentially meaningless, if not, in many cases, even harmful. So it's funny how in those days you had this worldly and empty chatter, but I I would be willing to to say that the Apostle Paul had no idea how far worldly and empty chatter could go because he didn't understand, like you said, social media. So it's, again, it's about focus. If we want to have that motivating vision as Christians, we need to find that focus. So that's a futile vision. But next we might have a fuzzy vision. A fuzzy vision is based primarily on feelings and circumstances that fall short of the most important thing. So this vision, this fuzzy vision, it's clouded by how we feel. It's a vision filled with mediocrity, rationalization, and indecisiveness. It only has the power to maintain the status quo because it's fed by emotion and not clear direction. It's fed by emotion and not clear direction. It doesn't excite or insight, yet it's the kind of vision that most of us hold on to because it's a comfortable vision, and we want to be uncomfortable when that vision is comfortable. James 1, 22-24. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. A fuzzy vision is based on feelings and generally doesn't lead us anywhere. It's kind of like that New Year's resolution we talked about. We want to be thinner, more educated, eat healthier, But eh, it takes a lot of work. (laughs) Maybe next year. Being a follower of Jesus takes a lot of work, too. We have to be a doer and not just a hearer. And the right vision should transform us. And that's the key. The right vision should transform us. That's what we want to get to. That's what we need to find. And that brings us to our third kind of vision. Julie, what is it? All right. Futile, fuzzy and now fiery. This is the kind we want to have. A fiery vision is based on godly focus and direction that brings true fulfillment of the most important thing. So fiery vision, something that that drives you, that's got that, that passion and that heat behind it that makes you move. This is a vision that's bigger than you are, more powerful than you are, and a vision that you can only, with your very, very, very best effort, play a small and yet perhaps significant role in. Hebrews 12, 2 is a good example of this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Rick, I think your favorite Bible study word is context. Yes. But a close runner-up is perspective. Yes. And in episode 910, how did raising others to life prepare Jesus for death? When talking about Jesus raising Jairus's daughter from the dead, you said, we ought to see the tragedies of life as Jesus sees them. Meaning when you can envision a larger perspective, such as why God temporarily permits evil, which we're going to discuss shortly, we can stay better focused on our vision. So the idea is to see through eyes that are not yours. That's what Jesus did. For the joy set before him endured the cross. He had that vision, that clarity, and we need to see through his eyes. We need to see our lives through his eyes and see what he sees in us and this helps us to be motivated to truly grow in these things. So, so far, the bottom line seems to be to not be like everyone else when it comes to focusing in on our life's vision. We certainly want a vision that is clear and godly. How do we go about finding such a vision? Well, having a clear and compelling vision for life, it brings well-being. As we soon shall see, there are five basic elements of well-being. It's a key to having a productive and happy life. We don't normally think of well-being as a scriptural concept, but the account of the prophet Habakkuk teaches us this well-being through focusing on a big, godly, and powerful vision. So Habakkuk gives us a lot of answers about this developing of our vision. That's good, but what if somebody doesn't have a motivating spiritual vision? Life's difficult, and some people have a hard enough time just getting through the day, let alone concentrating on something more comprehensive. Where should someone start? Well, Julie, for me, God is love and will not leave anyone behind. Personally, God's plan for all is what motivates me. Christ died once for all to be testified in due time. There is good news of great joy for all people. All the families of the earth will be blessed. God's vision of justice and love and mercy for everyone is what keeps me going every day. I love the allness of God's plan. Did you make up that word? I, think I it love did. that word. <laughs> the allness of it all. Thank you. And here's the thing, Jonathan, you know, for you as a Christian, that, that has crystallized in your heart and your mind, and it gets you up and moving. But Julie, like you said, a lot of us are just like, uh, I don't know. What do I do? It's, it's too big. It's too hard. I, I don't understand. Well, folks, listen carefully, because if, if that's you, that's Habakkuk. That's exactly where he was. So listen to the process of what happened to him and learn how to take that wondering and turn it to wondering and wandering and turn it into moving forward. That's really what we want to look at here. So the prophet Habakkuk did not have a wholesome vision of the future. And again, just like most people, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk, the prophet, did see. Now, uh, the word see here is the same word for vision. Now, God's prophets had a really hard job. They had a dynamic relationship with him, but were often told to do or say things that didn't make sense or were unpopular with those who heard the message. Finding a godly motivating vision begins when we confront our circumstances and put them before the Lord. So this is important because this is talking about Habakkuk's vision, and this is what he saw, and we're going to see that it wasn't the greatest thing right off the bat. So there, there, are, five, there are five steps to developing this vision that we're talking about, this godly vision, and the steps are to request, to reset, to receive, to respond, and to rejoice. So we're going to walk through those as we go through the development of Habakkuk, learning how to put these steps in place. First is request. We request when there's something that we cannot see, cannot do, or cannot grasp. We're puzzled, so we have to ask. Asking the hard and detailed questions positions us to see and grasp a vision that's beyond our sight. So now we go to Habakkuk chapter 1. Now we're going to pick up with verses 2 through 4, and this is Habakkuk crying out to the Lord. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you in violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? 
Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Habakkuk was really venting, wasn't he? He was frustrated and felt hopeless. And doesn't this sound just like the headlines of today? You know, Habakkuk looks around and he can't believe all the injustice, the violence, the wickedness around him. Why isn't the Lord doing something about it? Doesn't he see how bad it is? How long do I have to call on you, Lord, and you don't answer? Now, Habakkuk is unusual because most prophets didn't directly confront God. But don't we feel like this sometimes? You know, and that, that, that's one of the reasons why using Habakkuk as an example for developing motivating vision is so important, because he's legitimately frustrated, and he asks God in prayer. To ask in sincerity and faith is to take a burden off of yourself and put it upon God. This is important. This is exactly what we see Habakkuk doing. This unburdening is a powerful first step as it provokes positive emotions. And by positive emotions, I don't mean, woohoo, life is wonderful. I feel like walking through a, a, a field of daisies. <laughs> this is not what we're talking about. Positive emotions help us to see clearly. And we're going to be quoting from a thesis paper we found as we discussed developing well-being in the context of learning how to maintain and how to attain and then maintain a godly and motivating vision. This paper is called The Search for Purpose in Life and Exploration of Purpose, the Search Process and Purpose Anxiety by one Larissa Rainey at the University of Pennsylvania. And the author gives us five elements of well-being. The first one is positive emotions. And she said this, they're essential not only because they enhance an individual's subjective experience, but also because they act to broaden one's mind and build one's resources for the future. This allows for heightened creativity and flexibility, better problem solving, and greater opportunity for connection with others, end quote. Positive emotions like optimism and the result of strong social relationships help build up these long-term reserves that we can use during future challenges and setbacks. For me, times when it's relatively peace and quiet and stress-free, and I hate to say stress-free, maybe stress-reduced, <laughs> when I is when I rejuvenate and I try to store up some resiliency for the inevitable stress and obstacles that come up. And having a solid foundation of stability and a sense of purpose is key to not being thrown off course when trials hit. The Apostle Peter learned how to be centered. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Excellent. And one of my favorite scriptures is when the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4.12, I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In every and any circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul was centered, and his contentment was not dependent on his circumstances. But Rick, positive emotions can be difficult when some of us are just barely hanging on. You know, just living day to day for some is extremely difficult. Yeah, it, it is. And that's why this is not a think positive podcast. This is not a come on, get pumped up. That's not what this is about at all. This is about the positive sense, the positive emotions of I'm handing over my issues to God Almighty. The relief that we can get even if it doesn't solve our problems, it helps to us to see things more clearly. So there's a process of growing here. And Habakkuk had to go through the process, because you both mentioned Peter and Paul. They were both centered at that point in time. Habakkuk isn't. He's not centered now. He is frustrated. He doesn't understand. And God's initial answer to his question about God, how long do I have to call for help here, it didn't initially make sense to him until the very last line of God's answer. So let's look at Habakkuk chapter 1. Let's look at verses 5 to 6, and then we're going to skip to verses 9 to 11. Now, God's answer has a lot of details. Listen carefully to the kinds of details they are. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. All of them come with violence, 
Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers, are laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty, those whose strength is their God. Wow. I, I, I really like that. You wouldn't believe it if you were told. Yeah. <laughs> and I think of it like Habakkuk watching a parade. You know, he could only see what was directly in front of him. But God sits above the entire parade route and knows exactly what's around the next block and 10 blocks down. And a lot more trouble was coming. This was bad and about to get worse. And Habakkuk sees the trouble, and he sees the breadth and the depth and the height of the trouble, and he says, God, this is enormous. And God's answer is, oh, you have no idea how bad it is. <laughs> and, and, and so it doesn't make sense, but until the last line. God says, and it's quiet almost, but they will be held guilty, those, uh, they whose strength is in their God. And there's a hint of retribution and justice coming, but it's at the end of all of these other things, and it's hard to see. So it talks about the Chaldeans are going to be raised up. Who are they? Well, they were an ancient people um, in modern-day southern Iraq, it's thought. Now, Abraham was born in the city-state of Ur of the Chaldees. Chaldeans raided Job and killed his servants and livestock. And at times, the Chaldeans ruled Babylon. And that includes King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's day, making the Chaldeans and the Babylonians synonymous and used interchangeably in various scriptures. Now, the city of Babel, which would eventually become Babylon, built after Noah's flood by Nimrod. Now, both names are derived from the same Hebrew word that means confusion. So Babylon means confusion. We have a Bible commentary by Russell on the Chaldeans. Babylon was the capital of Chaldea. So symbolic Babylon reigns over the civilized world and the masses are fitly termed the Chaldeans. So you have not only something happening in Habakkuk's time, but it's a prophetic happening of what's happening later in time. And it's looking at the time of trouble. And that's something that we're well, well, well aware of. And our world is formulating that time of trouble. And we look at the things like Habakkuk looks and says, God, where are you? What is happening? This isn't working. I'm, I don't know what to do. I'm stressed out beyond belief. That's really what it comes down to. So the answer to, to Habakkuk's first question, God, where are you? Don't you see what's happening? The answer is a recounting of the permission of evil. You think it's bad? You wait. This is a truth that's very, very difficult for many, many to grasp. And I'm glad you brought that up because humans have been asking, why does God permit evil for as long as there's been evil? Why doesn't he just get rid of it? And God's wisdom and justice knew mankind would need the experience of evil to appreciate what is good. That's what a loving father does. He allows children to make mistakes and then learn from them. In God's kingdom, humanity will learn the opposite of evil, which is goodness and righteousness, and most will choose righteousness for eternity. So even though there was a hint of justice in the last line of God's answer, that line was, but they will be held guilty, those whose strength is their God, Habakkuk was challenged by the, by the scope of the answer. However, his faith in God focused him to continue requesting an answer with a second question, as he sought, sought a godly vision to follow. So Habakkuk wasn't giving up, even though he's still confused. He's asking God again. We go to Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you can not look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Habakkuk was brave enough to put it all before the Lord. So in other words, he's saying, aren't you the creator of all? Aren't you bigger than all this evil? How can you sit back and allow this? As Christians, our vision can't be distracted by these circumstances of the world, because we have to realize that God's plan needs to unfold and our politics or our social activities won't change the eventual outcome. 
So you see that Habakkuk was in the same place that a lot of us are today. We're confused. Right. We look around and we get overwhelmed by the circumstances. And, and you got to understand, there's nothing rhetorical about what, the way Habakkuk is asking these questions. He's seeking an answer. He wants to know why three things, faith, hope, and trust. He knew God was bigger and is bigger than all and any of this strife. He knew it, and he's insisting on finding and understanding. And how can we relate to this prophet of old here and now? Because we need to ask the same question, but God's not going to talk to us. He's going to speak through his word. We need to ask that question and go to his word and study so we can see it unfold. We too can be troubled by the things beyond our understanding. And at times like this, we also need to put our requests and troubles before God because he does listen and we are firmly promised that he listens in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we have Jesus to sit between us and God as our advocate, to help us, to translate for us, to stand, to sit with us and say, I hear you, and, I, and, and through me, your prayers go to God. We can be heard in our difficulty. And this is a big part of finding our vision. We have to request. We have to ask. So, Jonathan, finding our vision. Let's wrap this up. Sometimes, as we look to grasp our motivating vision, we fall into only seeing the immediate vision that our circumstances reveal. This vision is inevitably futile, or at best fuzzy, and will not sustain us. Finding the grander, godly vision for our life begins by asking for God's providence and power to be recognized. The act of asking in true faith will stir up our positive emotions, which in turn help us to respond through faith and not sight. It's the act of asking in true faith. Not faith that says, yeah, I believe in God, but faith that lives I believe in God. That's where we have to start if we want to set, develop this kind of motivating vision. We have to ask in true faith. So thinking positive is one thing, but thinking positively toward God's ability to handle all that's wrong in the world, that is a life changer. Habakkuk's request for God to show himself reflected his deep need to know. What would the prophet do next? The first chapter of Habakkuk ends with him detailing the ungodly attitudes and actions of the Chaldeans. This shows us how profoundly troubled he was. It's in moments like these that God can be more easily understood. See, God often makes our life challenging. In so doing, he stimulates us to pay closer attention. We become better listeners when what we see doesn't make sense. God sometimes needs to get our attention. We become better listeners when, we, when what we see is like, wait, wait, this doesn't make sense. Lord, what do I have to do? Bingo! That's where we need to go. So, so Julie, let, let's pause here for a moment. What about your motivating vision? Well, uh, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this during this study, and if I was going to choose one word, it would be reconciliation. My motivating long-term vision is to be able to be useful to the Lord in the reconciliation of the world back to him. I want to help people learn about God's plan. I want to help that healing process when everyone comes back in the resurrection because they've made such messes of their lives. I want to try to help. Um, so I try to put myself in a position where I can be used by God. So reconciliation, that's a powerful thought. You, you think about if you've ever been in a situation where, where people are at odds, and you love people on both sides of that, and you say, if only, if only there could be a way to pull them together. That's what you're saying. You're saying is you want that to happen, not just with the people you know, but with the billions you don't. And to, and to want to be a part of that, that's a pretty powerful thing. Jonathan, the allness of that really rings true with the allness of all, doesn't it? That's beautiful. So good. That's, that's awesome. 
So let's get back to Habakkuk and his learning process. Once we faithfully request, we need to take the next step. And the next step, step two here, is to reset. Reposition yourself to alertly receive. And we're going to use a phrase here that we're going to come back to often. Change your posture. We'll define that in a moment. Let's go back to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. Here's Habakkuk's response now after his prayer. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Well, a rampart is a defensive wall of a castle or walled city, having a broad top with a walkway and typically a stone parapet. A parapet is a low protective wall along the edge of a roof, bridge, or balcony. Here is Habakkuk at his figurative guard post awaiting instructions. He mentally changed his position. He did. He was frustrated. He was complaining. He was bewildered. And now Habakkuk is repositioned to stand, to watch, and to receive. He is intentionally looking and listening for his instruction. Remember, he's a prophet of God, and he's waiting for instruction so he can do that which he is called to do and serve the people. Habakkuk was positioning himself for engagement in the process of carrying out the will of God. So he went from complaining and bewildered and unsure to saying, okay, I need to be ready. What do I do? I'm glad you said engagement because that is the second element of well-being from Larissa Rainey's thesis paper. Remember, the first element was having positive emotions. And this second element of well-being, engagement, is principally about the experience of flow. Now, psychologically, this is an interesting definition. Flow is the optimal state of being where one is completely involved in the task at hand, self-consciousness fades, and sense of time disappears, and thought and emotion cease to occupy the mind. This kind of focus is said to result in motivation, self-esteem, and enjoyment. And you've heard of athletes being in the zone. They're fully immersed, and they're focused in what they're doing. That's flow. Well, I call it, it's like being in a work mode, which mm-hmm. means to me being focused on the task at hand and doing the best I can in that moment. Put away distractions and have tunnel vision. Now, posture is important also. When I'm doing the podcast, I sit at the edge of my seat straight and ready to honor the Lord. Now, having respectful attire when serving the Lord is also important. Be ready to do your best for God. So change your posture, change your mindset. That's the point of change your posture. Think about it in terms of sitting up, because you know what? We often go through life in a, an emotionally slouched position. We're emotionally like kind of worn out, and we're slouched. Sit up! Look at what the Lord—this is exactly what Habakkuk did. He looked for what the Lord was bringing. He sat up, and he paid attention. He changed his posture. So his change of posture, it's not necessarily easy. And in most cases, for us, it's certainly not comfortable. Feudal vision makes requests with no thought of resetting. Fuzzy vision makes requests and resets, but only as far as it feels comfortable. Habakkuk stationed himself as a watcher so he could hear, see, and report. He stationed himself to thoroughly engage. He changed his posture. He was putting himself in a position where God could now use him. The Bible gives us several of these resetting examples. One of them is Peter after being given the vision of being commanded to eat the unclean animals. We're going back to Peter and Paul. Well, first Peter, Acts 10, 19 and 20. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, Go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Well, Peter was told, get up, change your thinking, and go with these men. This experience of Peter's was to convert the first Gentile to Christ. That was a big reset for him. Yes, and another dramatic example of resetting is the Saul of Tarsus. Remember on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, 4 to 6, it says, And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you're persecuting. Get up 
enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. So Saul went from literally hunting down Christians to becoming the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest leaders of the church. He needed to change and reset in order to be used of God. In Philippians 3, 13 to 14, he said, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, definitely in the zone. In the zone, he resets, folks, to find our motivating vision. If we are trying hard and we're falling down, think of Habakkuk. Think of the bewilderment. Think of the, the challenge. Think of the things he saw and said, God, where are you? Where are I just don't get it. And then think of him hearing God's response, saying, wow, this sounds pretty serious. I better be ready. This is the key piece here, putting ourselves in a position to reset, to change our posture so we can actually hear with the ears that Jesus would have. That's what we want to do. It's not just hearing from my own emotional perspective or from what I think is, is good or comfortable or, or, or common. It's hearing spiritually what, what, what God would want us to do. This is what Habakkuk was putting himself in position for. So finding our vision in relation to resetting. Jonathan, what do we have? As Christians, we all know to ask God for help. Where we begin to falter is in the resetting of our hearts and minds in faith. Without this resetting, true engagement in God's will is hard to attain. A truly motivating vision can only take root in someone who is willing to change their posture, change their perspective to one that stands ready to receive. Doing this needs the fire or zeal of determination. Set yourself on fire for the Lord. Now, this is not a, 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 uh, a, an emotional uh, suggestion. This is... Get the fire burning from within to say, I am here to serve God, and I know it's hard, and I know it's confusing. I need to set myself in a place where I can, third point, where I can receive. Because now we requested, we reset, we changed our posture. Now point number three, Habakkuk is going to learn he's going to receive. To receive means to watch and listen and wait as action and change are likely going to be required. So, God instructed, he encouraged, and judged as he prepared Habakkuk to see this vision. Here it comes. This is Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. This is, this is the transitional verse that puts Habakkuk in the place where he can follow God's vision. L listen, listen to how God expresses himself. He says, Habakkuk 2, 2 to 4, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it certainly will come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. So God is specific, and he's given Habakkuk instructions to help him see God's vision. And he's helping him see that God's vision must become his. And he's saying, it's coming. Though it tarries, though it seems like it doesn't get there, wait for it, because it will not delay. It will arrive precisely on time. Now, it's interesting. In these verses, Habakkuk 2, 2-4, God gives Habakkuk a very practical way to do what he's tasked with. So he, and, and this is something that we can all learn with. God actually gives Habakkuk a process, a six-step process, in terms of recognizing a goal, a vision, and accomplishing it. So we're going to take the verse apart and show you the pieces of that process as we go. Uh, let, let's get started with that. The scripture says, record the vision. First, we have to have the vision clearly defined. The scripture says, inscribe it on tablets. Second, we need to write it down and make it understandable. The scripture says that the one who reads it may run. Our third point, make it accessible so it is regularly reviewable. The scripture then says, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal. Fourth, we have to take action, do and encourage what is necessary to make progress. 
The scripture then says it will not fail, though it tarries, wait for it, for it most certainly will come, it will not delay. Fifth, we need to realize that delays will seem like failures, but they are in fact stepping stones. And finally, the scripture says the righteous will live by his faith. Sixth, we should never, never, never give up. See, these are important steps that God gives to Habakkuk, and he gets it. He understands it. We're going to see how Habakkuk changes and, and, and becomes a, a purveyor of God's vision. God assures Habakkuk that all would be well in spite of what he was seeing. So our vision for our lives needs the same kind of trusting relationship with God that Habakkuk had. We need to really trust our Heavenly Father. Sometimes Christians pray to God, but don't have a relationship with him through Christ. The relationship through Christ is a relationship of trust, reverence, and honor. It has a sense of security because we know he guides us through his, with his Holy Spirit. It takes, and it's a give and take. God does most of this giving, but we give our hearts, emotions, doubts, mistakes, our everything, and he in turn builds us up. Let's go back to our five elements. Remember that first one was positive emotions. The second was engagement. And the third one is relationships. The, the relationships are the third fundamental element of well-being, according to this paper. And one of the positive psychology's founding fathers named Christopher Peterson famously summarized the findings of his field in three words, other people matter. And first and foremost, God through Christ matters to us, and that should be our highest concern. And then all other relationships fall under that in their proper perspective. If we have requested in humility and reset in faith, then we can receive in confidence. Proverbs 3, 26. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. The question is, am I ready to receive? Have I changed my posture? Have I reset because I've, I've asked, because I've requested in all faith and honesty and, and laid it all out? Am I ready to receive? Am I sitting up? Am I paying attention? Am I standing there waiting for God's will so I can carry it forth? Where was Habakkuk when he received? He was standing, watching, stationed upon his guard post. This posture enabled him to receive the vision. And it enabled him to receive the correct vision. He didn't fall for anything else now. This is what we're going to see unfold. He doesn't fall for anything else except for godly vision because he positioned himself to receive it. Jonathan, what about us finding our vision? As Christians, we will not be able to receive God's vision as our own if we're engaged in futile and unscriptural speculations or fuzzy, uncommitted emotional thinking. The fiery motivation of God's vision will only truly come to us if we have a relationship with him and we trust his will and his way above all else. This is a choice. This is a choice. Am I standing in a place where I'm actually going to receive and then be ready for the next step? So if we pay attention to what Habakkuk is doing, we'll begin to see how faith and trust bring us personally closer to God. We have requested, reset, and received. Even though this sounds complete, it's not. What's next? Up to this point, we've only seen Habakkuk engaging with and responding to God uh, in a conversational way. The true proof of the prophet fully adopting God's vision as his own will be in what he does from here. Habakkuk's next challenge is to act in such a way that it reflects the power of God's vision as his guiding light. Now, Rick, what's the motivating vision of your life? It's very simple. And, I, you know, I worked really hard many, many years ago to make it very simple. My motiva motivating vision is two words. And those two words are honor God. Now, that sounds oversimplified, but in my mind, it's a very complex equation. Because that means in my thoughts, in my words, in my deeds, in where I go, and the people I associate with, and how I carry myself, in, in, in the gestures I use, everything must be to honor God. And it drives me because God is the creator of all. So Jonathan, allness has something to do with my vision. Nice. God is the author of the plan of reconciliation. 
So Julie, that is included here as well. And to honor him is to honor the plan of the ages, is to honor eternity of the unity of his creation that he's driving towards. I have, I have no choice but to try to do the very best I can to honor him every day in every way, always. That's my vision. So one, once we faithfully request, first point, reset, second point, receive, third point, we need to take this next step. And this is big. The fourth one is to respond. Dedicate yourself to absolute obedience to the vision. Respond with fire. Respond with zeal. Respond with that energy that says, I will go where you send me. God's response to Habakkuk in chapter 2 shows how much God sees, knows, and is ultimately in control. His response ends with these words. So we're, 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 we're really summing up chapter 2 in just a few verses here, because God went through a lot of details of the difficulties before Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, arise, and that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, but all the earth be silent before him. In other words, only the one true God knows the plan from beginning to end. The Lord hasn't abandoned us. And this idolatry comparison he makes reminds me of Joshua twenty four fifteen. You know, the famous choose this day whom you will serve, but for me and my house will serve the Lord. But I looked at it closer. It says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So you have that sense of comparison. And here God says, uh, the, God's response ends you know, w- w- with these words. But the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. God is planting the seed. I'm here. I hear. I see. I'm ready. All the world will be silent before me when I say so. Mm. And in contrast, I think of the poor response of Judas. You know, when things weren't going the way he thought they should, he wasn't able to stay focused on his vision and was easily lured away. That's not what happened here with this prophet. You can see how Habakkuk grew into his responsibility here. You can see where he started and where, he, where, where he's gone now. He can now respond as he's been powerfully and thoroughly answered. What does he do? He prays. Again, he prays. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk's honesty is is here. And, And again, he's honest. He's talking about his fears. So you've got his honesty, his fears, and his requests are all very, very plainly stated. This is a big lesson for us. He truly has accepted the word of the Lord, as his soul guiding light. He knows there's no changing what God said was going to happen. But even though he's afraid, even though he is afraid, he has latched onto the higher meaning of God's word. His prayer in chapter 3 shows his understanding of the trouble that God is permitting through all of this. So let's jump down to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. I heard, and my inward parts trembled, at the sound of my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Habakkuk needed to see the big picture and not just react to circumstances or his current events. He stopped trying to correct God about all the evil he saw from his perspective and started seeing it from God's ultimate vantage point. This applies to us as well. So here he is. He's waiting. He's willing to wait, even though waiting is hard. And he says, I must quietly wait for the day of distress. He's accepting because he sees God's will is bigger than that 
distress. And, and, and this is, he understands, he understands that God has a purpose in everything, that there's meaning to the whole picture, and he is now embracing it, even though it's very difficult. Well, let's get back to the five elements of well-being by Larissa Rainey. Positive emotion, engagement, flow, and you just said it, Rick, meaning. The fourth element is meaning. It refers to the sensation of belonging to and serving something that is larger than self. Meaning helps individuals make sense of the world and to come to understand their place in it. People without meaning in life are more likely to experience psychological distress, end quote. And when we understand meaning in terms of God's vision and the plan in our lives, we can be at peace because we can trust in his overruling. Whatever happens to God's children around us and in every other way that affects us, we know God's got this. I think of the three friends of Daniel who said, in effect, God's got this, whether or not God delivers us from the flames. Remember, they were thrown into the furnace. We accept whatever he follows and sees fit for us. God's children don't fear what's thrown at us. And I recently heard in a Bible study a great quote, whatever God's will is, it's perfectly acceptable to me. Isn't that beautiful to get to that part? And that's what Habakkuk had come to. He had come. I must wait quietly for trouble. I know it's coming and I will wait quietly for it. And folks, this is the point where you can't change the difficulty in your life, but you can change the perspective with which you view the difficulty, and you can change the strategy with which you handle the difficulty. And that's exactly what Habakkuk did. As hard as the truth was for Habakkuk to hear, his response was to embrace it as his own fiery vision for his life. And here, folks, this, 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 is, this is breathtaking to me. Here's the first part of the conclusion of his prayer. Listen carefully to where he has come. Remember, he was complaining and unsure at the beginning. Listen to where he is now. Habakkuk 3, 17 to 8 to the first part of verse 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. So Habakkuk is saying, even if everything falls apart, I will exalt in the Lord. What a powerful lesson for us. This is a powerful, practical, real-life application of how to have a motivating vision when your world feels like it's falling apart. We need to go through the steps that Habakkuk went through. He shows us how to hold on to things that are bigger when everything else, when circumstances seem to be out of control. There is control because God's got it ultimately in hand. So Jonathan, finding our vision here in, resp- in, in, in relation to our responding. As Christians, we need to request in humility, reset in faith, and receive in confidence. Habakkuk did all this and was now able to respond in zeal. Though God's vision in some ways was overwhelming, It was clearly Habakkuk's visions now. His response would be to courageously speak and live this vision in spite of his fears. We also are tasked with the same challenge as we respond to whatever the Lord's guidance is for the vision of our lives. So we need to be clear. Whose vision am I going to accept? My own futile or fuzzy vision or the fiery vision through God's word? through his providence, and through his way. I have a quote from Mark Twain. He said, Courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. Habakkuk was still afraid, but you couldn't see it anymore because he had decided that he would work through his fear. So the final point here now is to rejoice. Once you respond, you rejoice. And this, this, was, this can be hard because the greatest act of faith is to rejoice in assurance even though the present is difficult, maybe out of control, maybe not understandable, we're still supposed to rejoice. The third chapter of Habakkuk is filled with the fearsome events of his own time. And remember, prophetically, these are the fearsome events of the time of trouble. And as bad as all of this seems, here's how Habakkuk continues the ending of his prayer. So we saw the beginning of of the conclusion of his prayer, of his prayer, talking about things failing, yet I will exalt in the Lord. Well, Jonathan, let's pick up with verses 
18 and 19 as he concludes. Yet I will exult in the Lord, and I will rejoice in my God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet, and makes me walk on my high places for the choir director on my stringed instruments. Not only is he all in with the vision, he's putting it to music. This reminds me of Psalm 33.3, sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. Think about it. He's making God's vision public by putting it to music. When you set thoughts and words to music, it makes it easier to remember. Absolutely. And I I had never heard this expression of having hinds feet in high places, but it's a pretty famous quote in the Christian world. And this thought also appears in 2 Samuel 22, 34 and Psalm 18, 33. What's a hind? Well, that's a female deer who can place her back feet exactly where her front feet stepped. She can run securely without stumbling off track. So it's said that this deer can scale unusually difficult terrain where others can't go and it can elude predators. Habakkuk adopts the vision by saying, God gave me the ability to navigate this really treacherous time. I've been changed. I've been given an ability to walk through things I was afraid of before. And we're better equipped to overcome obstacles if we adopt this kind of elegant, stable, confident feat. With God's vision, the impossible is now possible. That which was unable to be navigated suddenly has a path. And this is how you develop that fiery, godly vision. You go through those steps, and look, it didn't change the circumstance, did it? It didn't change the trouble. It didn't change the turmoil. It didn't change all of the difficulties he was about to face, but it changed his perspective, and that perspective gave him strength, and that strength gave the people strength because he said, here, sing this to the people so they can understand God's got this in control. Habakkuk not only accepted God's vision, he made it his own. He was given those hinds feet on high places. He would walk wherever and however God's vision instructed him to go. Habakkuk had accomplished what God required of him as God's vision was now his. This would become a song for all to praise God with. So we talked about five elements, positive emotion, engagement, flow, meaning, And the last is accomplishment as the final element of well-being, encompassing the winning, the sense of mastery, success, and achievement that people pursue. This is an important aspect of what we understand. It's about winning. Now, it's not like, hey, I won. It's about winning the battle that God puts before you. It's about being victorious in his name, in his way. That's exactly what Habakkuk did. So, finding our vision. As Christians, we must learn to defy defeat. We must learn to derail discouragement, and we must learn to diffuse distraction. And we must grow into having God's vision as our own and learn to rejoice in all of it. Let us not have futile vision based on our opinions or a fuzzy vision centered in our emotions. Instead, let us claim the motivating fire of God's vision as our own. So these are some of the lessons of Habakkuk, the prophet, who learned how to be that prophet that God needed him to be. Once again, let's just go through those five steps that Habakkuk went through. First, request. We request when there's something we cannot see, do, or grasp. Second, reset. Reposition yourself to alertly receive. Change your posture. Third, receive. Watch, listen, wait, as action and change will likely be required. Fourth, respond. Dedicate yourself to absolute obedience to the vision. Respond with zeal. And finally, fifth, rejoice. Because the greatest act of faith is to rejoice in assurance, though the present is difficult. And Rick, you gave a sermon once that's available on the Christian Questions app under the bonus video section. One of my favorites called Redeeming the Time. Regarding vision, you made a statement I thought was profound. You said this, The path to the thrilling mountaintop passes directly through the tedious valley of experience. Because you think all this is so invigorating. I want to praise and worship God and Jesus. I appreciate the immeasurable gift of life for all. But then life slogs on and we get distracted and discouraged and disinterested. So once we get to this rejoicing stage, 
Don't get discouraged if we slip back. I think the cycle continues many times through our Christian walk. Request, reset, receive, respond, rejoice, and it repeats, and it repeats, and it repeats. Absolutely, and, and that's the point, and that's the lesson from Habakkuk. Remember, Proverbs 28, 9, 18, uh, the, the Rick interpretation, if you will, where there's no firm and compelling life vision and direction, people become unrestrained, directionless and exposed. They will be drawn to the next tempting idea and not to their highest purpose. And finally, in Isaiah 40, verses 30 and 31, it says, Though youths grow weary and are tired of vigorous young men, stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. Why? Because we are looking to God for guidance, for help. We are requesting, resetting, receiving, responding, and rejoicing. That's what Habakkuk did. That's what we need to do. Find your godly vision. Think about it. Folks, listen, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, what does God's grace do for me? Talk to you next time.